0: Welcome to season two of Best in SaaS, where we talk through the patterns and playbooks in the revenue sprint to 20 million and beyond with the industry's most accomplished executives, entrepreneurs, and investors. Despite the world melting around us, we survived season one with only a few scratches and a couple of bathroom incidents from our resident Best in SaaS puppy mascot, Stuart. Wash your hands and don your favorite face mask because here comes season two. Howdy everyone. Welcome back to another episode. I am thrilled per usual for you to listen in on this conversation. But before we get into it, if you're a regular listener and you enjoy the discussions, do me a favor and let us know by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other folks find the show and it helps Apple realize they should feature us on new and noteworthy. So that would be awesome. With that, enough of my blabbing. Let's get on to the episode. Okay. So today, really excited. Sandy Lynn here with us. Um, She is the CEO and co-founder of SkillJar. Um, I mean, you've been growing like crazy. So I'm really excited to talk about the distinct revenue phases that you've been through to date, where you are today. Maybe we can anchor the conversation with where are you today? And uh, with that, welcome to the show, Sandy.
1: Thanks. So, um, SkillJar, we are an enterprise SaaS product. It's a customer education platform for companies to create online academies for their external customers and partners. Um, we're about 100 people, um, mostly headquartered in Seattle, Washington. Uh, we just raised our Series B from Insight Partners. We announced that in September. And, rep, Thank you. And revenue wise, I'll say, we're solidly between ten and twenty million of ARR.
0: amazing. That's such a big milestone to to have passed that ten million ARR, you know point in it's almost like a line in the sand and and represents such a distinct uh, next step. so let's let's start there. Um, I know from previous conversations that you, I mean, you're an engineer by background, right? And you started off with a very product. Led growth model. And now today, it's not that same model. So can you can you talk us through kind of how, how SkillJar has evolved over time and how you how you, you yourself have evolved as an engineer leading a company as CEO?
1: Wow, that's a I could talk for the next 10 minutes about that. So let's do it. Keep me on track. <laughs> um, well, so first, you know, product like growth is really hot right now. And But the reality is there's many, many paths to make amazing businesses. So I think every startup, every founder, every company has to find the right business model that's appropriate for them. Um, so as you said, my background's in engineering. Then I went to get my MBA. And then I worked for about four years in product management at Amazon. And in starting the company, um, I think it's important for founders to do what they're really good at. And my co-founder, Jason, um, is an engineer as well. And coming from Amazon, you know, Amazon prepares you for a lot of things around entrepreneurship, being scrappy, being metrics driven, um, but it really doesn't teach you anything about, I think, B2B marketing and B2B sales, at least, you know, at the time we were there, which is 10 years ago. And so in the beginning, I think, A lot of founders, including Jason and myself, we just wanted to build a product that people would find value from. Because if you try to design this whole master plan, you will never get started. There's so many reasons why products will fail, why go to markets will fail. There's too much competition, or every good idea is taken. And um, so, especially coming from a product DNA, we're like, we just want to create a product that people. Use and love, and hopefully will be willing to pay for. And you know, both Jason and I uh, love lifelong learning. Um, Jason's uh, wife and his mom are both teachers. And back in 2013, there was so much disruption happening in online learning—Khan um, Academy, uh, Coursera—and we just felt like where there's disruption in an area that we're passionate about, then there's opportunity. So we actually started with. Um, a sort of consumer product it was a kind of like a yelp for online classes essentially and you know pretty quickly realized that that may be a great product but there was no real path to monetization um, or at least a path that he and i were not uh willing to to do and uh and so we actually pivoted uh, after about six months to um a b2b version so we created a a really a learning platform that was designed for like super small business and so solopreneurs so like book authors that might want to launch a video course along with their with their book and um kind of a, a freemium credit card model and there's actually a lot of great companies doing fairly well in that segment these days and that business is going okay actually i think um you know, y Combinator uses a phrase called ramen profitable and we were able to get that business to to Robin profitable but you know fast forward a year a year and a half and you know first we knew that um, the uh, of the thousands of people that signed up into a trial I think exactly zero had converted without a sales conversation from from yours truly and we just get it, started getting a lot of interest from you know, at the time I called them real companies because they had even like a hundred person company. I was like a real company as opposed to, you know, a book author that was more of an independent operator. And, uh, and then we started signing, you know, real companies and getting interest from even thousand person companies, which again, at the time, like coming from a product background, I didn't really understand those differences. I remember our first uh, six Digit ARR deal when it was in 2015, um, when we were still like five people and angel funded and nobody knew who we were. And the the customer was asking about multi year contract discounts. And I'm like, 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 hang on a second. And I'm Googling like multi year contract discounts at the same time. So, but what I realized through all of this was actually product management and engineering are actually good backgrounds for sales and go-to-market because it's really focused on the customer. So what what are the customer's problems? Discovering those, like understanding the technology and how that matches to the customer solution and then figuring out the transfer of value from a commercial perspective. But that early part around, what are the customer's real problems and can we solve them? Like There's a lot of similarity between um, engineering, product management, and and sales in that dimension.
0: So, I, you know, a lot of founders who come from a product background, I feel like the push is like they the product is their baby. They want to stay close to it. They are, they're the early sales rep, but then as quickly as possible, they want to move away from, from sales and marketing and, and stay close to product. But it sounds like you really found a way to make it naturally tie into the pieces of product management and product that you love and then become very good at it. So what was, what was the moment for you when you decided that you wanted to pull back and bring in some leadership and sales and marketing? How did you make that decision and how did it feel to step back from that?
1: You know, you make it sound very intentional, but I think it was a forced necessity. Um, I, so Because, you know, my co-founder and I came from Amazon, we had really wonderful and unfair access to top technical talent very early in the company, like people that, you know, ex-Amazon engineers that were willing to work for minimum wage because, you know, they were, you know, burned out at their previous jobs and just wanted to be part of the startup journey. And so, like, when I say about our first five or six people, we essentially had, like, Jason, myself, and like top quality Amazon engineers that we probably couldn't afford in any sustainable way. And so um, it was clear to me from the very beginning that I had to play all the go-to-market roles as uncomfortable as it was because we were kind of over-resourced in one area of the company and far under-resourced on, on the others. And, um and I've gone through a lot of evolutions and am continuing to in, in sales and marketing. I remember the first couple sales reps we hired, and one of the biggest mistakes uh, I've made early on was thinking, "Gosh, you know, if I hire a salesperson, any salesperson, because remember I didn't understand the difference between advertising sales and S and B sales and enterprise sales at the time. I hire a salesperson." I teach them the product and then they will figure out everything else. And it was this, you know, classic engineering product. I am afraid of salespeople. I'm not a good salesperson. Um, And, uh, and I actually was pretty insecure about my own sales ability until maybe like even two years ago um, because I just felt like I didn't really know what I was doing. And I asked a lot of people for help and advice on, um, how to, you know, quote unquote, do sales. Uh, and so it was almost like over indexed in the opposite direction, which is, Oh, let me hire some salespeople and teach in the product and then like, stay away and they can figure it out. And after, you know, a couple cycles of failure on that, it was like, gosh, like maybe I, I know how to sell the product, but I don't really know how to, uh, you know, effectively build and manage a sales or marketing org and so you know it was actually delighted to bring in people that were hyper qualified for those roles now over time as you know we've gone through various phases of the company i've learned more about what is the right skill set for a particular stage and then what does that mean for our go-to-market model and how that person fits into the culture um, but the, the challenge and the blessing of a fast growth company is that those dimensions can change very, very quickly and somebody can get out of alignment sooner than you might think as well.
0: So let's let's talk about those phases that you just referenced. If we had to peg them to rep. Well, first off, do you feel like you can peg them to revenue or is it some other qualitative you know, thing?
1: Yeah, I think it's probably Pegged to product market fit in some ways more than pure revenue. So because Skilljar was and arguably still is much stronger in product market fit than go to market fit. Like um, oh, as I'll go through each phases, I think that's been the challenge. But I know some startups build those simultaneously, or the go to market actually comes first and the product is lagging. So, um, so I think in our case, you know sub sub one million of ARR was founder selling in hindsight. Now I, I'd hired like a couple reps here and there and that run up to a million of, of revenue. But the reality was I was still kind of doing the selling. And for us, because we were purely a sales driven model at that point, And because of the nature of our product, we couldn't really sell to SMBs or, you know, the classic startups on other startups, like school jar couldn't do that because our product is really only applicable to companies, let's say, minimum 100 employees, and so a lot of the, our first real companies. million dollar yeah real, real companies <laughs> our our first million dollar in revenue was actually really high quality revenue. Most of like those customers are still customers today, and I think for a lot of um, you know startups, especially those in perhaps Silicon Valley you know, they know their first million of revenue is this sort of churn and burn. And for us, that wasn't the case. It was it was a slog to get there. But consequently, like I was able to establish at least the initial kind of go-to-market fit really well. Um, and then I think, you know, people talk about one to 10 being another phase, but I think it's not that simple unless you've really tuned your, all of your acquisition channels. So um I think our one to 5 million ARR phase, we still really did have strong product market fit, but I think, you know, getting your first, it's it's more than two, getting your first four reps really productive is a challenge. And so there's a ton of experimentation, a ton of ambiguity, at least for us, right? Because we've always had inbound interest and because of that product market fit, we've got fortunately, you know, wonderful customers who love the product, Um, but especially also in enterprise sell sales, where it's like a little nuance, like this isn't the next sales productivity widget that, you know, moves the needle by, you know, 1% on your sales rep productivity, right? Like SkillJar is a considered purchase with, you know, a couple stakeholders. It's not like we're, you know, selling the next really complicated database thing, but it is you know, a consultative sale um, that requires some kind of solutions planning. And uh, it's, not a, it's not a one or two call close, let me put it that way. So the I think the one to five million phase was, you know, getting a small team, um, you know, familiar with enough at-bats for what our ICP, ideal customer profile really was. Now, in hindsight, I think, again, I wasn't... I was still too hands-off because I wasn't really confident in my ability to guide, you know, sales leaders. You, know, you hire sales leaders, a lot of them say like, hey, you hired me to do a job. Let me do Don't do my job. And, you know, silly me, it was like, okay, like, let me stay out of your business. But actually, you know, I think in hindsight, the organization and our team learned a lot about our customers, but we weren't process-driven enough. So I actually love um i forget one of the the founders of hubspot wrote an excellent book about you know designing your go to market as sort of an engineering system and when i read that book i was like like oh light bulbs going off like like wish i had done that um but i think you have to find the right sort of builders who have that same mentality too to like design your go to market as as a true system um and then now where we are, you know, after the Series B and in the, you know, eight healthy eight digits of ARR, now our challenge is around um, kind of multi-segment, um, multi-go-to-market because we do serve um, a wide range of company sizes and a wide range of industries. And so so now that like sort of planning, metrics-driven sales process, while also, uh, you know, building an amazing team and motivating them in a virtual environment that is now becoming, you know, very, very important.
0: So uh, one of the things that I always find really interesting to ask about is, whether written or in the back of your head, I find that most CEOs have like a running list of the, okay, next time, when I start my next company, here are the things I'm going to not do to accelerate my go-to-market sprint uh, in the early stages before we're really in like scale phase. Thus far, what if you had to have like a highlight reel of maybe three to five, you know, glaring, absolutely not going to do this again, and it's gonna we're gonna be better for it next time. But hard one, right? You you really had to like you can't learn these in a textbook. What would some of those things be for you?
1: Oh, this is so hard. Um, <laughs> well, first. I'm never doing this again. So.
0: (laughs) IPO or bust.
1: (laughs) And even if you're you're never a first time founder twice. So, okay. So let me just think out loud, right? So one of them is this decision of where to locate your company. Now I have no regrets about starting the company in Seattle because Jason and I lived here. We had access to amazing product and engineering talent here. But I do think, like all else being equal, it really was a gating factor on go to market because there just isn't as much experienced startup, B2B, go to market talent in Seattle as there is, say, in the Bay Area. And one of the silver linings of COVID now is for the first time, well, Skilljar is in a different stage of the company, but we also can come into go-to-market leadership with a mindset of abundance because now like being having to relocate or commute to Seattle is no longer a factor. And perhaps at the talent pool, we only had access to, I'm making this up, but like 5% of qualified talent. And now we have access to 100% of qualified talent. So, you know, in hindsight, like at the time, it was the right decision to start the company in seattle but i think if i were to you know do it again in today's environment i would try to think more holistically about where or perhaps knowing that we would have got we would have been very remote friendly from the beginning um but you can't optimize for everything
0: early on so there's so many pacific northwesters that are shaking their fists at the sky right now listening like no
1: (laughs) <laughs> yeah um let's see uh i think that's i think that's a big one for me of of just having access to you know more senior talent early i mean c- capital is another one you know seattle we're, we have been really fortunate to have you know amazing angel investors and a seed investor but it was hard and i think it in seattle you know forces in a healthy way, a lot of financial discipline and scrappiness super early. Um, but it would have been nice earlier on to have taken some more risks. Like I think a lot of Seattle companies are very resilient and have strong cash flow patterns because you always need your plan B of survival. And there's there's good and bad things of it. Um I don't know that there's a lot of Seattle companies I can raise, you know, there's series A on a PowerPoint like even, you know, 5 7 years ago. So um, and I think that breeds a level of of discipline but also a reality that you have to make money from customers very very soon and um it's less likely that like of course in a perfect world I would hire a whole bunch of super qualified VPs early that were still kind of startup friendly and hands-on and, and could do things. It wasn't, you know, practical. Oh, the unicorn. Yeah. But you don't want to go too soon, too senior, too early either, because there's a lot of in the trenches work and iteration and experimentation that has to go on. And, um, even now at our stage, I feel like there's a lot of real building and rebuilding, um, in a fast-growing startup, the company basically completely changes every year. If you're doubling every year, then everybody's scope and complexity like at least doubles every year and sometimes more because the web of stakeholders and the web of departments actually multiplies. You can't have one-on-ones with everybody anymore until all of a sudden like the exponential number of one-on-ones is unmanageable. Yeah. So, um, and that's true I think for startup people regardless of what stage you are but especially in the 0 to 10 million journey the the amount of like doubling complex complexity happens faster.
0: So what are you I mean let's flip the question what are you excited about what gets you really just jazzed about this next you're entering this next revenue sprint fresh capital in the bank you can hire from a talent pool that is now exponential like what what has you stoked?
1: I'm so excited. And I think the next phase, we're sort of wrapping a bow on the startup phase and entering the scale up phase and being able to not just think long-term because I think, you know, all founders, you know, do think about their grand vision, but really starting to lay the groundwork for things that will are built to last. And I mean, it's even kind of seemingly silly things like getting Salesforce Enterprise version, right? Because you know what, we need to invest in, in the Enterprise version of Salesforce um, if we're going to be built to last. And um, and so, I'm excited about uh, about the talent for sure. I'm super stoked about the um, ability to kind of bring in you know leadership in, in multiple functions for the next phase of the company. And for us, you know, we're at the intersection of online learning and customer engagement, customer retention. So like the timing um, from us, from a market standpoint is also a, a really good silver lining. What may have played out over 10 years in our industry has been accelerated to, to one year. And I just want to make the most of that dynamic to deliver the, the most impact that we can.
0: So... Who are some of the folks who have been an inspiration, whether mentors, peers, just folks who have um, helped get you to where you are today? Oh, there's so
1: many. Um, so I'll start from Amazon days. My first uh, VP at Amazon, uh, a gentleman by the name of Tom Taylor, who is still there, angel investor in the company. Um he is just an amazing leader um, and has always been, I think, by my leadership, North Star. Even as an intern, you know, he took an interest in me. And when I when I changed teams at Amazon after my first two years, you know, he, he took me to lunch and, um, you know, asked if we could stay in touch and set up quarterly lunches with me. And this is a guy that, you know is on Bezos' S team, right? Which is, you know, his senior leadership team. I think he's now, I think Tom is now SVP of Alexa. And so, so humble, so effective, such a great team builder, and I have a ton of respect for for Tom. Um, I think two of my CEO mentors, Glenn Kelman, who's the CEO of Redfin. Glenn is such a soulful, wonderful person, has taken two very different types of companies public. And um, has just been such a uh, inspirational and um, person for me. Dawn Lapore is another one. So Dawn, she, I think most recently was CEO of drugstore.com, but has been on many, many boards, um, spent the bulk of her career at CIO, at Charles Schwab, and also just an amazing um, people leader because, and a lot of these people that I've mentioned are leadership mentors and The reality is, in a software business, it's still a people game. Like a lot of my what I worry about, what what I spend my time on is the right people and the right seats, and especially in the virtual world, how do we communicate? How do we do change management? How do we ensure that every person on the team kind of understands how they align to the goals and how are they doing? And so, a lot of the things I think about are actually um, related to people, and maybe that's why, as I'm as I'm thinking out loud, there's uh a lot of the mentors that come to mind are are actually um, a lot of former CEOs, but CEOs that are very human focused in in what I discuss with them. And, you know, I think as far as the actual subject matter of things, there's, you know, I read a lot online, of course. So all the usual SaaS, go-to-market folks and um, a couple people I've gotten to know over the last year, uh, Alyssa Fink, who... It's a former CMO at Tableau, um, Michelle Law, who is the CRO at Castlight Health and the COO of OpenDNS. Before that, you know they've they've all seen incredible journeys um, on the revenue side as they've grown and uh, have been great people for me to to bounce ideas with.
0: Amazing. Well, Sandy, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I think folks who are going through these. Distinct phases as they approach scale up are going to learn a lot from our conversation. So uh, thanks for having it with me.
1: Thank you.